episode 60 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 1st of April 2019. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Good evening. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. Yes, it's the 1st of April, but we don't believe in April Fool's bullshit, because that's just stupid. So we're going to do a completely normal episode. So let's start with some news then, and the biggest news story over the last couple of weeks that's Linux-related is Google's new game streaming service called Stadia, which is based on Linux servers and is going to use just sort of the thin client model. Do any of us really care about this? I don't like it. Why not? I'm concerned that this is the beginning of the end for like buy-to-own games and that that whole concept of, of having a piece of media in your hand and being able to stick it into your games console and boot it up whenever you like, um, you know, virtually free after the point of purchasing is going to be gone uh, and all the uh, all the things that that means so games being forcibly removed from your uh, library when you know for well, for whatever reason really um, a complete lack of a second-hand market which I think props up a significant number of purchases for for, for people um, CEX might go away and then what am I going to spend my pocket money on <laughs> but hasn't that sort of been the case for a while anyway I know that consoles still have optical media, but it's all downloads and updates and everything. Surely it's not a huge step from where we are now. I don't like that either. (laughs) Fair enough. What about the fact that this is going to be good for Linux, though? Linux gaming and graphics generally, because they're going to have to upstream at least some of the work that they're doing to make this good. That remains to be seen. Um, If we take uh, Chromebooks, for example, you know, they're based on Linux loosely. and Chrome indeed is based on Chromium, but there's still a certain amount of special source that um, that's being kept back there, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if the same applies here. So, will it actually benefit all of us? I don't know. Remains to be seen. I first was quite happy with the idea because it seems to bring my uh, prediction for this year closer to being a reality, mm-hmm. which was um, that um, Valve would offer a very similar service through its Steam platform. I think Will raises a really excellent point. I mean, people do have their games removed from um, purchases on the PSN, for example, and there's just like everything, there's so little you can do. You know, there's no humans you can speak to about these things. But I can't imagine Valve doing the same thing um, in, in terms of at least you still own your copies, even if you can't transfer the license, which is bad. But I guess that's the way things are going. But surely Valve could delete stuff from your library and then okay if you've got it installed locally you've got it there but if you move to another machine they could remove it i I haven't ever heard of them doing that but the potential is there surely yeah i've heard they've they've done similar things but there's been so so much kind of um negativity from the community that they've often had to reinstate the binaries or at least make the binaries accessible to people who originally had it i mean even when things are removed due to like copyright violation if you still have the binaries and you've backed them up you can often just put them on a different machine well there was a fairly high profile case recently of valve removing something from people's libraries um i can't remember the exact details now but yeah it it has been known to happen that's for sure oh right i didn't know that failing presumably you read this saw there was no flight gear and said, fuck that, not interested. Well, here, here's the funny thing, which I posted earlier into the, the our group chat. I actually clicked the link and it wouldn't load. And I thought, <laughs> oh, fucking hell, they've already killed it. It's not even started yet. <laughs> so I know that's an old fucking trope at this point, but realistically speaking, 
it's not that fucking unrealistic either. No, it's not. I mean, that's my biggest fear with this. That, and the, well, not fear, but the thing that would stop me investing in it is it's just going to go away like all the other Google services. Google Plus dies officially tomorrow, probably by the time you're listening to this. And how long is it going to take them to get rid of this? Because hmm. game streaming is something that's been tried an awful lot, but it just takes a lot of infrastructure. And yes, Google have got that infrastructure to burn and money to burn doing it, but to make it profitable is incredibly hard, unless they're not necessarily interested in profit and they're just interested in mining data somehow and how people play games and maybe can train some machine learning algorithm or something. I saw an article somewhere uh, that talked about this being an extension to YouTube rather than a service in its own right. Game streaming and viewing of people playing games is huge business now. Um, all the kids are into it. And uh, this is a sort of a natural extension to make sure that YouTube stays relevant as viewing habits change. Um, I wonder if, if that's their goal. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I read that same article. It was on The Verge. And it makes the very good point that um, it's really just competing with Twitch at this point. They need to do that because YouTube is losing out, at least in that sector of YouTube, which is relatively small, I suppose, given all the other makeup tutorials and all that bollocks. But it's something that Google needs to stay on top of. And it's supposedly the future, sitting around watching other people play games, which I've kind of been pretty down on before. I remember being forced to watch people play Zelda as a teenager, and that was the most fucking boring <laughs> thing I've ever seen. That's because you're waiting for your turn, but I mean, I don't understand. I really just don't understand this. Watching someone online playing it, you don't even know the person, and they're playing a game, and you watch them. Well, people say, you know, we watch football and rugby, but, um, you know, why won't you watch someone play a different type of game? Fair enough. But I don't know. Not not interested, personally. I think this is going to be good for Linux, though. I think that because it's all based on Vulkan on the back end, they'll have to upstream the changes to that, the improvements to it, and they will be looking to refine it as much as possible. And I think we will all benefit to some extent. How much so remains to be seen before they actually just shit can it after two years. But uh, we'll see. All right, well, let's move on to more desktop-y type stuff. And there's a new version of OpenShot, which is actually my favorite editor on Linux. Not that I'll be trying this out for, uh, well, and when's it going to be in the next LTS, Will? Probably 2004. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but yeah, it's my favorite as well, like, regardless of how many times it crashes. Maybe they fix that now. <laughs> um, I still like it. I still find it easy to use. And uh, it just makes sort of logical sense to the way that I want to edit a video and the way that OpenShot does it. It just, just fits with the way that I think. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of OpenShot. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying this version out. Sadly, there isn't a snap. Boo. Um, but there is an app image, so you don't have to compile it yourself if you're if you don't want to but uh yeah i'll be looking to try this out and um and try some of these new features and just check the stability of it really yeah i think that is one thing that has been a bit ropey before but what i really like about it is that it reminds me of windows movie maker which is probably <laughs> damning it with faint praise but just the simplicity of it that it, it, it's just logical isn't it just mm. everything is where it should be and it's not more complicated than it needs to be now I'm, i don't think you're going to edit a hollywood movie on it but if you're just doing a bit of top and tailing and putting a few clips together or whatever it's perfectly adequate and that's all i need really yeah i'll be interested to see how they've improved if indeed they have improved the uh, the subtitling and the text overlays i found that to be a bit clunky where you had to create the text overlay, effectively render it to an image, and then drag that image 
over the top. Um, and once those images had been rendered, it was quite tricky to go back and edit the text. That was a, a minor bugbear of mine. Um, and I do see some improved SVG rendering. I don't know if that's just the, the presentation or the, the UX of that, but uh, I'll certainly go and give that a go. Yeah, I remember having troubles with that and I couldn't work out how to do it. So I just created some transparent PNGs in GIMP and just dragged them into the timeline mm. and kind of put it over it, which is very clunky, actually. Yeah, maybe that's one feature that it could uh, do better. Presumably, Caden Live does a much better job of that then. I'd love to say that I know, but really, I'm terrible at video editing, but they did have a sprint recently, um, and they've got the team together, and I think they knocked out around 85-odd bugs or so, um, and got a plan together to help improve stuff. There's a, a quite a good write-up on it, where they, they spent a week together at one of the guys' houses in France, uh, ironically in Lyon, where I lived. Lucky them. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so that, that's quite good for it. So it's kind of good to see both sort of uh video editors making strides you know because we for a long time that was always the thing of oh when can we have a video editor that'll be halfway competent well i think there's probably two that we can really rely on now hopefully after this um question though what is the difference between the way OpenShot would work and the way kdn live would work i think kdn live is just a bit less accessible a bit less obvious i haven't used it much because i've kind of opened it up gone, oh, how do I do this? I oh, know, fuck that. I'll just go and use mm. OpenShot, which I know how to use. And I think OpenShot was, I used to use one called um, Avid Mux or something like that. AVID Mux. That's the one. Yeah. Um, I've always said Avid Mux because it's Avid is like the big proprietary one. Uh, so, I might be wrong. Um, but anyway, yeah, that one I used to use, but then that got a bit too crashy and shit. And then I tried out OpenShot and that just made a lot of sense. And then Caden Live seems a bit more powerful but also a bit more complex for my very limited needs. But I know that a lot of the Linux community edit their videos on um, Kaden Live, so it must be good. Mm. I tried the, um, you know, we talked about the 1904 beta a, a couple of episodes ago. Oh, yeah. I, I downloaded the, the snap of that just to give it a go because I used to be quite into this kind of thing and edited all the old Linux voice stuff with Final Cut Pro and it I'm always interested in how close they're getting to be Final Cut Pro because I just I just love the way that you can tweak the size of clips from within when all the clips are lined up you know so you can drag the left or the right borders and they both open shot and KDN Live both do that now all right but the ref, the refactoring it was missing some kind of it split the audio channels out by default. So it's kind of a weird view if you're used to the old way of working. And the But you could have like two different monitors and the clip and the monitor view were easy to use. And it looked really clean. So it was a bit unstable as well. And it had OpenCL support, I think, for rendering the videos in the background. But it worked well and it was missing transitions and some effects. But I was quite excited by it. Hardware acceleration isn't great, though, I've heard. Whereas with Final Cut on the Mac, it just works perfectly. You yeah. can easily scrub even 4K footage and stuff, whereas with Caden Live and OpenShot, forget about it. Yeah, and Apple really nails the the background high-res files, you know, with the, the front-end low-res previews that you edit with. I mean, all that's yeah. done is off done offline, um, which is really good if you're working with 4K stuff. Yeah, I think that um, the free software video editors have got a little way to go to compete with that, but I don't need that kind of thing. I... I'm rarely going to be editing anything more than 1080p, usually sort of 720 or even standard def, really, for just the little things that yeah. I top and tail or whatever. So they're fine. But 
yeah, serious professionals. I don't think you're going to be using either of them anytime soon. But you never know. But obviously, serious professionals will be using the Trinity desktop, um, <laughs> which has had a, a release recently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trinity's based on KD3 or 3.5. I can't remember. 3.5. Yeah, and it's kind of the mate to that, isn't it? It was a continuation of it when they moved to the horrendous KDE4. Kind of, but it still uses QT3, which I think is really dodgy. But um, I tried, well, I tried to try this out today um, and I struggled to get anything to work. And even the PPA repos don't appear to exist. So I'm not really sure where this project is. So I don't know whether such a massive influx of new people raced to try this out that they blew their hosting bill to bits. <laughs> I don't know. I I find that unlikely, but maybe. Because it's been a while since they've had a major release, um, isn't it? So yeah, I, I remember trying it out last, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago and being actually quite impressed with it. Um, it was just very straightforward and just sort of stayed out of the way and, and did what a desktop should do rather than being all fancy and flashy. It looked a bit old and shit, but the functionality was there, and I'm presuming you can theme it and stuff. So although you don't have any um, nostalgic feelings about KDE 3 then, either of you two? No, it was fine back in the day because it looked better than KDE 2 and KDE 1 before that, but I moved on because it was... Like, it looks old now. Like, looking at the screenshots, as best I could manage is look at the screenshots, and they look really old. I just, I mean, if that's what you like, fair enough. But I would struggle to sort of sit there and, and browse the web on something like that. You don't know what type of horrificness is going to be unleashed upon your machine. I mean, I'm sure they try their best, and I know a lot of the updates they had was for fixing CVEs and bugs in general, but how big is that team and what are they doing? You know, at least with Mate, it's a kind of a re-engineer of the old style. But, it, you know, it's it's been properly worked on. I get the feeling more. Well, that could be harshly unfair. I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, for example, they've moved to GTK 3 with Mate rather than the old GTK 2, whereas it seems that with Trinity, they haven't bothered to keep up with, what is it, Q5 it must be these days. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, so it's a shame. It's, it's good to see... Um, sort of historical projects keeping up because some people don't like change. You know, they want to keep the same workflow and everything. Is that right, Joe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're the odd person here and there. Weirdos. And, mm, it's funny, I was trying out the um, beta of uh, Zubuntu 19.04 and it's satisfyingly similar to 18.04, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> nice new background, though. Not that I would keep it. I'd obviously change it for black. And But the splash screen, like the boot screen, is black now, so it would suit my wallpaper as well. It would match it. You like those people who have a car seat that they keep the plastic cover on. You don't want to use up the what the LEDs in your monitor by having colour, is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. All right, then. <laughs> it's all about dark mode these days. I'm a trailblazer. Fuck you. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and you can get $100 credit with 60 days to use it. DigitalOcean offer VMs or droplets as they call them in data centers all around the world with super fast networking and amazingly fast storage. And you can run various distros on there like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian and CentOS and even FreeBSD. Or you can upload your own custom image and run whatever distro you want. 
And you can use one of these destroyers as a base and build it up to whatever application stack you want. Or you can just go for one of their one-click apps like WordPress or Discourse or GitLab. Now, these droplets start from as little as $5 a month, but you can scale them all the way up to hundreds of gigabytes of RAM and multiple CPUs and tons of storage. And they've got a few different types of droplets to choose from, some that are CPU optimized, some that have got more RAM. And if you need more storage, then you can just attach block storage or object storage really easily. So you can just customize it to be exactly what you need. I've been using DigitalOcean for years, long before they started sponsoring the show, and I've always been really happy with it. If anything goes wrong with my configuration of the server, then I'm able to just roll back to a backup, and I have done this a few times. The backups is probably my favorite feature. So go to do.co slash LNL, get your $100, check it out. That's do.co slash LNL. Um, all right, well, speaking of the KDE stuff, um, there was a bit of a debacle about KDE Connect over the last couple of weeks. It was removed from the Play Store and then ultimately reinstated because of Google's policies about SMS permissions. Now, obviously, you weren't affected by this failing because you don't have the Play Store. I do not, and I was not. <laughs> I didn't even know it was happening for a few days. All right. You do accept, though, that most people will have installed this from the Play Store. Foolishly, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Graham, where do you install it from? Oh, that's a good question. So I usually start off installing stuff from F-Droid. Um, and I may have done with KD Connect, but I... but. but you see, my phone isn't rooted and and uh, F-Droid doesn't automatically update the eight packages when there's a major update. And so usually at some point I've swapped over packages like KD Connect, some some of them not like Termux, which I always keep from F-Droid, but I didn't notice whether um, I lost SMS functionality. And worryingly, the copy and paste functionality could could suffer the same kind of consequences because of Google's wayward progression at locking down absolutely everything except for you know the the fated few megacorps that push their apps to them yeah well i think that they do have good intentions with this because it's not good for all and sundry to be able mm. to read your sms not that anyone actually sends texts that way anymore do they but like they give a damn about all the other apps that snoop on almost everything else you do you know yeah. they make this stand on an obvious sms usage but so you think they're just paying lip service to security here then yeah, I think so. I think this could have been handled a lot more sensitively because, you know, it's an important project. And so, and surely the Linux using Googlers will have known that. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's a bit of an insensitive move. And it's I think it sets a wor slightly worrying trend for free software on the Play Store. Um, and it, But that may push more of us to F-Droid. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. I would imagine that there was an uptick because that was the only place you could get the full version for a few days. So hopefully it uh, pushed people over there because there's nothing stopping you having both. I mean, I've got both. Me too. Yes, Phelan, there's nothing stopping you having both. <laughs> there is. <laughs> <laughs> the crushing oppression of freedom. Yes, yeah. Well, all's well that ends well so far with that, maybe. Well, we'll have to see. Um, all right, so Risk Five is my hobby horse. I always go on about it. And one of the main problems with it has been that there's not been any affordable hardware. It's been like $1,000 or whatever for a sort of Raspberry Pi type board, which, you know, economies of scale and all that, fair enough. But now there is a $50 dev board, the caveat being that it is much more sort of Arduino-like and much less Raspberry Pi-like. There's no uh, video out. It, this is not a sort of general purpose machine. 
but it does lower the barrier to entry for people who want to develop for RISC-V. So that's got to be good. Yeah, that's right. It's not going to be running an operating system as such, more uh, the code that you push to it. Um, I think that there is now support in the Arduino IDE for for RISC-V. I think I read that somewhere recently. Um, So it will be really interesting to just try and compile up some simple sketches and get an LED running, you know, get an LED flashing on and off. and, uh, and and that's it. You branch out into this this new era of free hardware. It's going to be very exciting. Can you do stuff like servo motors and all that stuff with it? Yeah, so it's got an I2C bus, which will let you interface to various peripherals. Um, it's got a serial port. Um, and I think that's about it at the moment. But there's a load of GPIOs that you'll be able to you know switch switch things on and off. And then with that I2C bus, you'll be able to interface to to more um, more advanced controllers. So I think yeah, you could build a a pretty rudimentary robot, for example, uh, on on this board today. And so fifty dollars for it sounds a lot for something like that. How much is an equivalent sort of ARM based device? Well, it depends what you buy. If you buy a genuine Arduino one, then it's more expensive. But uh, you could pick up something like a with a one of the M core um, processors in it for probably twenty or something like that, like a, a genuine ARM processor. But then you can go to the the AppMega stuff that's inside the the Arduinos, and you can pick those up, clones of, of those up off eBay for two quid or something like that. So it's got a little way to go until it's really considered cheap, but um, it, it's on its way. This is a good first step, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's not completely out of the question to spend $50 on something, even if that is way more than an ARM equivalent. But when you're getting into the sort of $1,000 range, that's a bit ridiculous. Not any, you know, Only really very serious hardcore devs are going to be doing that. So... Yeah, it's good to see some progress there then. Um, all right, well, uh, a quick Ubuntu news. Ubuntu Studio is not going to die. There was concern that they didn't have the developers, the, the team had changed, and they didn't have the commit rights and everything. And so it looked like it may drop off uh, from official flavor status, which is not good. But now that's all been sorted out, and it's going to continue. It's been a bit of a tumultuous couple of years, but hopefully they're going to get this 1904 release out. and. Um, full steam ahead towards the uh, LTS. Yeah, their guys are fully engaged. Um, they're active on IRC. They're they're joining in all the, the right conversations. So it's really good to see some enthusiasm back behind the project because I know it's got a lot of love out there. Um, lots of people using it. So this is, yeah, this is good news for Ubuntu, the good news for the community and especially good news for the Ubuntu Studio users. All right, well, let's end the news with um, something that we don't normally talk about, Red Hat, for obvious reasons, because you two canonical bastards. Um, but they have passed the $3 billion revenue mark, which is um, it's only slightly up from where they were before, but it does show that they are doing very, very well. And it kind of, um, I don't know, it puts it, things into perspective, doesn't it? When Sousa was bought and it makes you wonder how much the IPO or sale of Canonical is going to ultimately be. And just proves that open source can make a lot of money if you are a very competent company like Red Hat. That's the main takeaway, really. It's good news for all of us. You know, whoever we work for, it means that open source, it's always the first criticism. You know, how do you make money out of open source? There are lots of people making money out of open source. We've had the discussions about what makes a business a successful business model. You know, and Red Hat are obviously having lots of success with their business model. Yeah, and it puts the IBM acquisition into perspective as well. So, uh, yeah, well done, Red Hat. You're obviously doing something right. Hmm. 
On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's very much appreciated. The Patreon continues to tick up. And remember that uh, for $5 a month or more, you can uh, get an advert-free RSS feed on there. So uh, do check that out. LateNightLinux.com slash support if you want to join those people. Uh, and if you want to get in contact, LateNightLinux.com slash contact. And I told Jonathan Riddle that I would mention the UK Open Source Awards 2019, which is happening on the 12th of June 2019 in Edinburgh, Scotland, um, which may or may not still be in the EU. <laughs> With or without England? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fuck a bunch of Wales, Six Nations winning bastards. <laughs> oh, don't talk to me about egg chasing. I don't care about that. Um so this is not just awards. This is like an afternoon into evening event. The awards ceremony will be in the evening, but there's going to be some talks and sort of conference type stuff during the afternoon. I'm going to try and get up there for it, but I don't know. It's um, it's proving tricky um, scheduling wise, but I'm going to try and move things around and make it work. But uh, yeah, if you're in and around the area, then do go and check it out. I think it's free to get in. I don't know, it's in 71 days and three hours as we record. So yeah, do check that out. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com and they are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK. And they sell computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate, 1804 and 1810 and soon to be 1904. They've got a huge range of laptops, some desktops and servers, and almost everything's configurable in terms of the CPUs, the amounts of RAM and storage, so you're bound to find something to suit your budget and your needs. The range of laptops starts from fairly affordable machines, which are ideal for office tasks and email and browsing, that sort of thing, all the way up to real powerhouses with the latest GPUs in them that are ideal for 3D art, video editing, machine learning, you name it. And if you can't find something on the website that's exactly right for you, then do get in touch with them because they can be very flexible and they do their very best to accommodate your needs and customize the machines just how you want them. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of the machines, there's a little drop down at checkout, select late night Linux and they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Okay, so the other day I had something of a shower thought. We've had you on the podcast, Will, for quite a while now. And we've never taken full advantage of that. You're the boss of the Ubuntu desktop, for fuck's sake. So I thought we would um, grill you a bit about that. And I thought, um, let's talk about LTS to LTS. So picture this, listener. It's nearly midnight in Canonical HQ. They've just put out the LTS. Will is absolutely knackered with all his colleagues. They all go down the pub for a drink. And then... Two years later, another LTS comes out. What happens in the meantime? So, first of all, what what? It, it's not always midnight, is it? When you put it out, we try not to be midnight. Um, <laughs> we've got processes in place which mean that uh, from a week before release comes out, we should only be landing the absolute essential critical bug fixes. Uh, however, occasionally one creeps through that just for whatever reason our test processes haven't caught. And it's usually around an obscure piece of hardware. Well, I say obscure, you know, a, a, a relatively small number of devices, a specific piece of hardware that's out there for some reason 
uh, change has, has affected. And until it got to that close to release, people are not testing it. They're not downloading the images and testing them because they're waiting to be told that it's good and that it's finished. Uh, and yeah, so occasionally we do get to the 11th hour and discover one of these sort of critical issues that was completely invisible until the the very morning of the release. And then it's yeah all hands to the pump to try and get that fixed uh, as quick as possible. And then, you know, it takes time for the machinery to run and to build all of the packages and sign them and assemble them into the ISO and then copy that ISO around the internet to all the mirrors and get the web page updated and then click the button and see a massive spike in uh, in download traffic as everyone goes to get the new image so yeah there's there's a certain amount of lag between the the release being ready and it actually being ready to download um yeah so yeah sometimes it's five to midnight sometimes it's half 11 at night sometimes it's lunchtime it's uh it just depends on the day fair enough but either way it's always a bit of a sprint that last week or two up to it so do you what what happens after it's gone out and you've you know gone to the pub for a celebratory drinks or whatever do you get any time off or is it just literally the next day because you release on a Thursday don't you so do you at least get the Friday off No um Friday is is a very busy day for most people um the release is out there it's in people's hands now and more bugs are being discovered because now suddenly millions of people are starting to use it uh, and occasionally one of those is, you know, absolutely critical, and so we go and fix that, um, you know, immediately. Um, sometimes it's it's much smoother. Most of the time it is smooth, and we keep an eye on social media. We keep an eye on the bug tracker. We make sure that you know everyone's getting a good experience. Um, and for the release team, anyway, if that seems to have gone well, then yeah, we'll perhaps uh, we'll have the afternoon off on on the Friday. So presumably, you start planning for the next LTS straight away. Or is that not right? Do you just focus on the next release, the interim releases, as we like to call them? A bit of both, I suppose, is is the right answer. We typically have a sprint, what we call a sprint, which is an an all-hands, all-engineering hands meeting towards the end of of that release. So in this case, we had it in January in Malta. Um, So we've done some planning already up front for the next release, uh, and that helps us to understand what work we have to do, what our baseline load of work is. So how much work, how much effort we have to put in just to stand still. And then that tells us how much free time we've got to work on features and, and that sort of thing. And so we, we use that uh, that sprint to do some planning for the next release, but also we start looking further ahead. And the the, the LTS is a culmination of the previous two years worth of work it's not an entity in its own right it's it's a roll-up of all the previous releases so we do think further ahead we do think towards the next lts what do we need to get done in the new lts and when do we need to start that and and quite often the answer is well we need to start that now we need to start that at least a year before the lts so that we can land it in the release before the lts so they can get tested and be of sufficient quality for the lts when it then comes out so how soon do you start testing the LTS, the LTS script, the upgrade script? Because I had the joy of doing a Debian server, and it, until you do that, you don't realize all the nice things that a get new version in an Ubuntu server makes it so much easier for you. Um, how you know when you when you have that fixed to the point where you say, okay, these are def- these applications are staying. You know, we're going to versions, or maybe there's a new audio player, or whatever. 
how 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 often do you test the the upgrade between the two? Because obviously, it's important not to bust a system in the process. We automate the upgrade testing, and that's done pretty much every day. So we'll install, for example, the previous LTS, and then we'll automatically upgrade that to the current development release that's in progress, and that test will happen every day. Uh, And in the case of the LTS, that interim release, if you like, just becomes the LTS release. So we'll test the previous version to the current in-development release. We'll test LTS to LTS, and we'll test... Uh, LTS to incremental updates all the way through to the current release. So we test the upgrade path end-to-end automatically every day so we know if that's uh, if that's working or not. That must be a hell of a lot of machines then doing all that automated testing. Yeah, there are a fair whack of machines. They're all virtual machines. Um, well, most of them are virtual machines. We also have access to a lot of hardware in our lab in Taipei where our OEM partners like Dell and Lenovo um, you bring hardware along for us to certify and to get Ubuntu working on, and that hardware lives in our lab. And so we have a really amazing QA setup where we can summon a machine with a particular processor or, or a particular GPU and run a desktop install on that and see if it works. And, uh, yeah, that, that hardware, well, it goes back many years, five years, six years, maybe even older than that. So we can summon summon up plenty of hardware for testing this on. But that said, there's no substitute for actual user testing. And uh, that's the most useful thing, I think, is, is people downloading it, testing it, and letting us know when it breaks. So we've focused completely on the desktop so far, but Graham, you are a bit more involved in the other stuff that's going on. Does this all sound fairly familiar with the processes that you've seen for the non-desktop side of Ubuntu? No, it's quite it's quite different. I mean, I now work on Snap, SnapD. So, I mean, that is that's like a rolling release effectively although we do have kind of releases i mean will and the team do an incredible job i can't imagine the kind of i say this not as somebody working at canonical i thought i used to always think this you know it's widely known that there aren't for a company that you know has so much influence there aren't that many people at canonical and it's it's incredible i wanted to know how will dealt how he dealt with the pressure of of the kind of expectation, but also what what has he kind of learned initially going into these major releases that didn't end up being true that you had to kind of change that took the pressure off. Hmm. Dealing with the the pressure, I, I try try not to think about it too much. Um, <laughs> Do you find excessive drinking is a well? A that way? is certainly a crutch. That's for sure, um, <laughs> and, and one shared by many other <laughs> colleagues. I have uh, around me an incredible team of people. Um, everyone at Canonical is is really uh, it just sounds like um, the sort of uh, official response, but it's absolutely true that, that everyone at Canonical is dedicated to what they're doing and are incredibly professional, incredibly skilled. And yeah, I have absolute faith in in the team that they will do the right thing and uh, and, and plan ahead, and we won't get caught out. Um, so, yeah, I, I have faith that at the start of the cycle that the next version of Ubuntu that comes out is going to be good and is going to be high quality and is going to do um, what we what we think it will do. Now, occasionally, we overcommit to, to delivering features that, on the face of it, are fairly straightforward. And in reality, turns out there's a lot more work involved, which is much more nuanced. <laughs> Wayland. <clears throat> well, no, not so much Wayland, like um, GS Connect, for example. 
And so because of the, the nature of the release, yeah, the release, the release is a fixed point in time, and on that date, Ubuntu will be released. And so in order to hit those dates, stuff has to get removed. Um, and I think we, we do a good job of knowing when to call it a day on a particular piece of work and say, no, it's not going to make it of the sufficient quality to, to make it into the release and drop it and then refocus our, our energy on things that we do know that are going to get in and that are important. It reminds me in certain ways about you know, planning a magazine and you've got all great ideas for it. And you kind of hit 70 or 80% of those ideas, but the last 20% is a kind of a, a chaos of, of dropping stuff and grabbing other stuff that's feasible and fixing things that are going to work. Mm. Only, you know, you're making it for millions and millions of people. And for the sake of, you know, in the case of an LTS, you know, maybe a decade worth of support. Yeah, that's a new thing, isn't it, that you do have to think about. It used to be five years, but now it, with the um, uh, extended... Um, maintenance release whatever it is you are looking at potentially red hat style 10 years so it's really got to be right yeah absolutely and that is a a key part of the planning we do up front is that everything we do needs to be supportable for the 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 support period whatever that is five years ten years um so like ninjing in some some last minute hacks to to fix a problem (laughs) is is going to end up biting us in the in the long run so we are a little bit more careful about um, about the the way that we do things and the, the the software we choose to go into Ubuntu, so that we know we can stand behind that promise and um, and not uh, and not find ourselves spending more and more time doing support and less and less time doing features. We talked about Ubuntu Studio earlier. That's an official flavor, um, and I'm right in thinking, Anna, that if any of the official flavors have got a, a sufficiently large bug, that will block the release of the whole thing. So do you find yourself and your team having to help out the flavors to actually get the release out of the door sometimes? Uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. The, the vast majority of the code is, that, that is likely to cause a release blocking bug is pretty low down in the stack um, and so is shared among a, a vast number of common um, common projects. It could be server, it could be Ubuntu Core, it could be the flavors, it could be desktop. And usually it would be all of those things. Um, and when we get to that sort of scale of bug, then we can draw from resources across the entire company. And um, yeah, everyone pitches in to help and, and get those fixed. So yeah, um, we all pitch in. It's all one big, uh, one big happy family. So do you find yourself wrangling the community a little bit? Like do, do all the flavors look up to the 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 big boy or are they all just sort of independent and you know equal uh they're definitely independent um we tend to cooperate at the developer level rather than at the the user level as it were um so if uh, if a developer from a particular flavor needs help then then the desktop team are on hand to to help those guys out um but the community around those flavors is responsible for supporting their community of users and they are always very happy and very engaged in doing that you take ubuntu mate for example you know martin's out there spreading the word talking to the users fixing bugs uh, and that's that's pretty typical of a, of an ubuntu flavor that they are absolutely dedicated to their their particular project and um, and they look after it pretty much on their own. So you mentioned the planning sprint then. Um, how many of them do you do? Do you do one for every interim release or do you just do that kind of before the cycle? And, and do you consider it LTS to LTS to be a cycle, a singular thing? 
Um, well, LTS to LTS is, is not a singular thing uh, at the implementation level, as it were. Uh, each interim release is its own entity, but there we always have the, the LTS as an end goal for that those two years. So we're always thinking... What effect is this this work going to have on the LTS? Is it going to make it more difficult to support? Is it going to add a feature which is absolutely necess- necessary? Um, and therefore, do we work on it now or, or do we just not bother? Um, so the LTS is a concept which is considered very early on in the process, but really it only it only exists once the interim releases are out and, and you know we've we've tested the waters with those releases. And uh, yeah, we have a sprint every six months. So yeah, one sprint per per cycle, per six monthly cycle. And then maybe we will have um, specialist sprints in between those. So for example, the Snapcraft Summit happens. I think that's happening every six months as well. Uh, and that's an opportunity to to go and meet with community developers, uh, software vendors, and the the Snapcraft developers as well. So if we've got things going on with those guys, then we can go along to their sprints as well and, and work face-to-face with them. And you used to do more betas, didn't you? What changed there? Every time we do a beta, we do a beta freeze beforehand so that the machinery that I talked about earlier has time to run and the, the ISO images have time to, to be generated and pop out at the other end. So for every beta or alpha that we produce, we have to freeze everything for a week at a time or, or thereabouts, which means that for a week there is work being queued up that people want to land into the archive so that it can can be considered done, which just queues up. Uh, and that was causing problems. It was slowing us down. It was causing a backlog of work, which then when we unfreeze, then we had to go through the backlog. Um, and it was deemed not really necessary. Um, the, the daily images are good enough. So you can download the daily image at any point during the release cycle. And our aim is that it will always work. And I think, actually, we're very, very good at that. Um, so the, the individual milestone releases during a cycle were deemed um, just to sort of get in the way and not really necessary. So we got rid of them. Except for one beta and that's it. And then it goes out. Yes. I can see the reasoning for that. But also... The beta is good publicity, isn't it? I mean, it's just come out um, for 19.04 and has kind of got in the news cycle. And maybe you're missing a trick there. It seems like technically it's not worth it, but maybe for the sort of PR point of view, it may be worth doing more milestones. Yeah, yeah. And and we do have the daily images. So we could at any point, we could just nominate one of those daily images as being the, whatever you want to call it, the alpha or or whatever. Mm. So... Yeah, I think that's a, you raise a good point there. We could generate a bit more buzz by by nominating a particular day. And I think we, we did used to do this in the past. We'd have like a testing week or a testing day where we would ask people to download the daily ISO and do some testing and report bugs back. And we'd hang out on IRC and those sorts of things to talk with people. Um, we did reboot that a bit last cycle. We haven't done so much this cycle. But um, yeah, it's a good point. I think we should try and do that next cycle. And so I suppose finally, how is the 1904 looking so far really good i'm really pleased with uh, with how it's shaping up it feels fast again um, we did uh, a fair whack of work along with upstream on improving the performance of it and when i installed it onto my test machine which is a fairly low spec machine um immediately it was noticeably faster and, and it felt snappier and just generally better put together uh, the quality is still very good there's some good new features in in gnome shell the stability is improved um, it feels, yeah, it feels like a really good solid release. And uh, if this is a, an indication of the 
the state of the LTS next year, then I'm yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Excellent. Well, I'm still not going to use it. I'm going to use Zubuntu because GNOME can fuck off. So I mean, the other there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in fact, yeah, you're the only one of us who's actually going <laughs> to use it. <laughs> but to be fair, we all benefit from the the underlying stuff. So you know. Well, that was good. Thanks, Will. I, I don't know why it's taken us so long to take advantage of it. I suppose because we were a bit aware that people might say, oh, you're Ubuntu shills. But, you know, you don't have the head of fucking the most popular distro on your podcast team and not, you know, do that once in a while. Maybe we could have Matthew Miller or someone on to do something similar about Fedora or maybe some of the other distros. Maybe can get Chris Lamb on before he leaves. Oh, he's probably left by now, actually. They're, they're doing the um, Debian elections at the moment, aren't they? So, uh, but yeah, hopefully that was interesting to people. Um, I suppose we better get out of here then. Uh, I think we may have a guest host possibly next time because, Phelan, you're going to be in uh, Trumpistan. I am indeed. So, um, yeah, until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.